Hello, and welcome to I Am Dad Podcast with your fatherhood authority, Kenneth Braswell. 30 minutes of wisdom, information, resources, and nuggets to help you on your fatherhood journey. Or maybe you're just curious and want to hear some real talk about fatherhood, family, and the minds of men. Well, guess what? We got you too. Sit back, grab your pad and pen, and maybe even bring a little something to sip on. Enjoy 30 straight minutes of fatherhood, family, and fun with the fatherhood authority. Kenneth Braswell. Welcome to I Am Dad Podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell. Thank you for joining me again on early on a Sunday morning as we continue to bring you the brightest, most influential, um, and important voices of the responsible fatherhood field. Um, it continues to be my pleasure to reconnect with friends, um, with colleagues, with mentors, as in this case, um, my guest today, Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, um, he has been someone that I've cut my teeth on since I walked into this space now 19 years ago, um, doing this work in the state of New York. Um, he was, before I get short into his bio, and I found this, I, I didn't find it, I had, I would walk by my case in the office the other day, and I said, you know, I have to remember that Dr. Jeff was one of the first people to recognize my work. This is from, this is the, this is the Spirit of Fatherhood Leadership Award. Dr. J, this is from June, 2011. That's, that's, right, what, that's right. 12 years ago, 12 right? 12 years ago, right, right. And, 12. So, and so you're, you're in our, you know, that, that luncheon you know, that we do, that's mm -hmm. our Spirit of Fatherhood Hall of Fame luncheon. So you're mm -hmm. in our Hall of Fame, mm -hmm. you know? And so, and it's so important for folks like you, Penny, and others to know about you. And so I see that as, as planting those stones, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Those stones, you know, of remembrance, you know, that they talk about, uh, I think it's in uh, the, the, the Joshua part of the scriptures. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and and we have to, and that's how we do it. You know, we have to honor those folks you like yourself and so that others will, will, will uh, read about you and, and, and learn from you. And so... Mm -hmm. Uh, so that they can continue to be inspired to continue to advance the work. Mm, so thank you so much for that. But I want to just tell people um, who you are, just in brief, and I'm sure um, they'll learn more about you as we continue to talk. But Dr. Jeff Johnson is the president and CEO of the National Partnership for Community Leadership, NPLC, whose mission is to strengthen the service capacity of public and private agencies to empower low-income parents and youth through innovative training techniques, practical program management tools, and evidence-based practices. Um, as the president, he is overseeing the planning and implementation of two of the nation's most significant social welfare research projects involving low-income men and women. Since 1997, under Dr. Johnson's leadership, NPLC, has convened an annual International Fatherhood Conference that attracts policymakers, family practitioners, and parents worldwide. He is also the Visionary and National Training Committee um, Chair for the 100th anniversary of Father's Day. Um, Dr. Johnson also presided over the National Youth Development Practitioners Institute for the Department of Labor's Youth Opportunities Unlimited Program. And additionally, Dr. Johnson currently serves as the Dean of the Fatherhood Learning Academy for the Healthy Start Technical Assistance and Support Center. The crazy thing, Dr. Jeff, is one of my good friends is um, is um, Derek. And so Derek Brady 
is a cast member of a bounce show called The Johnsons. And on The Johnsons show is one of the characters, one of the four characters is um, uh, is um, Thomas Jones. You remember who Thomas Jones is? Remember him? Yeah, I remember Thomas Jones. Remember yes. Thomas Jones? Remember Thomas Jones? Yeah. And so I'm talking to Derek's one day and I showed him a picture of the, I showed him a picture of the day that we were doing the 100 year anniversary celebration. And I said, two crazy things. I was telling Derek, so I was like, two crazy things happened that day. So I showed him a picture of me and Thomas together with my son. I don't know if you remember, my son had just been born. Like we were there, my wife and I was there and KJ was there with us. But at the time, Thomas was dating making good. Remember that? Okay, right, yeah. Remember yeah. that? And making yeah. good, I passed by making good, holding KJ and I heard this young lady say, hey, could I, could I hold the baby? And I was like, I turned around, my mind was like, I'm not turning my son over. Then I turned around and I looked, I was like, oh wait, Oh snap, it's making good. I was like, hey, how you doing? And so <laughs> I have this picture of making good holding KJ um, as an infant. And so periodically I show him that picture and I say to him, you ain't gonna understand what this picture means until you get older, that making good held you as a baby in an arm. This is going to be a story you're going to be telling in college. You're going to be telling to your first girlfriend. You're going to be telling to your first wife when she start acting up. You're going to start telling everybody about that particular time. But listen, Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for joining I Am Dad podcast. How you doing? First of all, let's start I'm, there. I, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, 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 I still feel um, I have a lot of energy uh, and uh and I just feel very fortunate, you know, to, you know, continue to do this work and to, you know, work alongside, you know, brothers like you and others and continue to uh, educate the, the public about fatherhood and the work that needs to be done uh, to cover our children. So there is something, there's a question that I ask at the beginning of all of my podcasts, and it's actually something that I don't know about, I know about you. I know it of most people that I'm in this work with, I know their story. I don't know if I've ever heard you tell your story. So the first question for you today is, what's your daddy's story? My daddy's story is that, you know, my father was a, uh, a, uh, a, uh, a preacher, uh, a pastor of the church, uh, and so a preacher's kid. And, uh, and during that time, they didn't have what you call the mega churches. And so my father, you know, worked uh, in the foundry uh, but he also was pastor of the church, um, and so he would look rugged in the morning, but uh, as soon as he would get home, uh, I never saw my father in the evening uh, without a shirt and tie, you know, mm. and it was my experience uh, seeing my father in the, in, in the paper for the first time, you know, because uh, he was the dean of the uh, state chapter of the NAACP in Michigan. Uh, back. When that time, I didn't know what was going on. All I knew that this was my dad, and uh, and he was a good dad. Uh, I have uh, uh, nine siblings, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I'm one of uh, uh, eight boys, and I'm I'm the middle child. Uh, and my father died when I was 12 years of age, and he was a good dad, you know. And uh, and the evidence of that is that uh, my mother lived to 94, and I never heard her utter a negative word about my father. Mm. Uh, and so that was important for me 
and psychologically and otherwise, because, you know, for uh, all the years as I've been a father, I've always tried to live up to the image of my father. And I've, you know, uh, not always gotten it right, you know, but uh, the point is that uh, he is why I do what I do, because I can't imagine what my life would have been like without knowing him for that 12 years. Wow. Uh, and uh, he had some ideas, uh, you know, a lot of folks in our space, as you know, uh, Kenny, uh, their father's story is a negative, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and the reason why they got into father deal because they didn't want to be, uh, they wanted to be the fathers of their children that they never had. Mm-hmm. But for me, it, my entry into the field is to, uh, is to help create a generation of fathers like I had. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, letting uh, uh, fathers know that you can, you know, you can you can start good and be good, uh, and you can be dedicated. Uh, and even if you fall short, there's a, uh, you know, we understand the importance of forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness is extremely important in the work that we do and the healing, uh, so that uh, relationships can be prepared, breaches can be uh, overcome, and that uh, children can experience the love of of two loving parents, and if it takes becoming a grandparent to be able to, to, to <laughs> reestablish the focus on the, uh, the importance of that, then you become the loving grandparent. But mm-hmm. I think that, you know, what I've tried to do is instill into practitioners and to fathers the, the real value and importance of fathers. Uh, and and I, I look at my father as, as the, that example. You know, I think about him every day. I miss him every day. Uh, and um, that's my father's story. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I remember um, James Worthy and I having a conversation years ago and we were out somewhere and we were talking and he turned to me and said, man, he says, every time I'm out with you and I hear you guys tell your stories, he said, I never have a daddy story like you guys. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, because to your point, he's like, everybody's got this tragedy story about their dads. And he says, in my is not only was my dad in my life, but my grandfather was in my life and my great grandfather was in your life. And I said to him, I was like, I said, well, do you want a tragic fatherhood story? And he's like, no. I was like, so what are we talking about? Real story. Uh, so this is uh, many years ago, you know, uh, you know, Charles Ballard, mm-hmm. you know, we'll talk about him a bit, but. Charles Ballard, you know, uh, was a real kind of strident uh, individual, and uh, and when, when you're in Charles's space, it was Charles's space. It was mm-hmm. nobody else's space but Charles's space. And so we're at a meeting, uh, roundtable full of folks, you know, you know, uh, Vivian Gaston, um, uh, 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 I think Maurice Moore was there, uh, Rod Mincy was of course there, and so. And Charles is standing up and he's, you know, talking about why all the fatherhood work needs to start with him because of his story. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? He talked about the bad relationship he had with his father and how he had walked out on his kid. And I tell you, and Vivian Gaston gets up in the middle of Charles saying this and said, I cannot take it anymore. She said, I was not wounded by my father. <laughs> wow. Wow. And I have a place here. Wow. Right? And so, and, and I tell you, man, it, I never forgot it. Charles never forgot it either. Because I think, because what she was saying is that, look, every story of a father doesn't start that way, Charles. Right. I know you, 
but but that was that's that's kind of been a way in which some folks kind of present themselves and kind of differentiate themselves, if you will, in our work. But but you know what we are about is a positive father engagement in, in in helping fathers overcome barriers that have precluded them from being involved. You know whether or not it was substance abuse, whether or not it was sexual abuse, whether or not whatever the case may be, uh, and that uh, we don't want to. You know, Peter Drucker, a famous um, nonprofit uh, leader and, and scholar, you know, shared this term many years ago in his book uh, on nonprofit uh, uh, organizations, charitable work. He said, feed strengths, starve weakness. Mm. Feed strengths, starve weakness. What does that mean? We want to emphasize the strengths of fathers mm-hmm. and, and really create a generation of fathers based on strengths and not the weaknesses. We want to identify those things so we don't want fathers uh, or mothers for that matter, you know, making the mistakes that leave children uncovered. But we want to focus in on the strengths. It's almost in educational parlance, it's like, you know, emphasizing assets over deficits, you know, presenting fathers as an asset model, not a deficit, not focusing on the deficits, you know, and so. That's kind of where that kind of thought process comes in. And I, and I think that when we're balancing the conversation between those who didn't have their fathers and those who did have their fathers, I think that's a healthy conversation. But I think in the final analysis, we want to make sure that fathers understand their value. Right. So how did you get in this work? Did you did, Was this something that you set out and wanted to do in this particular space around responsible fatherhood, or did you just kind of slide in or fell in? How did you get into this specific work? Well, what happened, this is back in the late 80s, um, uh, a good friend of mine who's now um, uh, head of the United Way down in the city of Atlanta, a guy named Milton Little, mm-hmm. uh, was um, dating this uh, uh, young lady at the time, a lady named Pam Wilson. And I had... Uh, been working, come to Washington, you know, uh, to work on issues related to school dropouts. Uh, and um, and I had done that, uh, and that's kind of what got me to D.C., you know, going around the country, setting up programs for uh, high school dropouts. And I was vice president of program development. And so one of the things I was learning during the time, you know, was the, the demography of, of these uh, uh, dropouts. And, and a part of their a portrait was the fact that uh, over half of them were coming from families where the father was absent. So, you know, this stuff is, I'm out there selling and I'm having to read what I know about what I'm selling. And so, you know, just gathering all this data uh, about, you know, the background of high school dropouts and and, and how that kind of leads to incarceration and all these other things, kind of trying to explore options and those type of things. And so when I left the organization, uh, 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 back in, in 1987, you know, I was asked to uh, do a presentation for the Muskegon, Michigan Urban League. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I wrote this uh, paper, which really turned into a book, and it was called The Endangered Black Male, The New Bald Eagle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I presented that, uh, that, uh, that presentation at that, at that event, and I, I tell you, Kenny, it was just like, you know, something came over me and says, you know, this is kind of what you're supposed to be doing mm-hmm. because the reaction was just so phenomenal. And it was during a period of time when, you know, the, the crack epidemic was uh, 
was 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 flourishing, and you know, young black males in the '30s were being you know killed and 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 being caught up in the drug trade and whatever. And so it was a message, but it was also a message before its time because you, you, you know, in doing so, it kind of made me you know really a target you know for folks who say that I'm promulgating an issue uh, of uh, that that you know that's too black, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It was like, you know, mm -hmm. because the book, you know, when it finally came out, you know, the, the focus is on the challenges that we had, but it also said that in order to preserve, you know, our young black males, black men had to be in the forefront mm -hmm. you know, of doing that because nobody else is going to do it. And, and so, but as I got more into the work, I getting more into the data, talking to more researchers, politicians, I mean, political scientists, the sociologists, you know, um, I began to, you know, understand what the epidemiology was, right? And Milton Little, this good friend of mine, you know, knew about the work I was doing. Uh, and, and so, uh, and I was uh, a penny for about five years. Uh, my, the only income I had coming into the family were uh, uh, proceeds from the book and, uh, and, and presentations I was doing out there on the book. And so it was really you know, it really kind of got me out there, you know, in working with folks like Jawaza Kudufu and uh, Naeem Akbar and, mm -hmm. you know, Wade Nobles and, uh, you know, that whole, you know, group of folks who were out there, you know, uh, talking about issues related to Black youth, you know, Black families and that type of thing. And, um, and so uh, Pam Wilson had been working with uh, Public Private Ventures in Philadelphia uh, under the direction of a lady named uh, Bernadine Watson, uh, and, and 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 Pam was uh, was writing curriculums and materials for um, uh, for them, uh, and um, and then uh, PPV got this grant from the Ford Foundation uh, to set up this young unwed father's pilot project, uh, and, uh, and 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 we got a grant from the Mott Foundation, you know, to 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 do the grant, but. Uh, they said, Pat, Pam, we want you to be on this project, but you can't do it. You got to hire, hire, hire a male or partner with a male to write the book because it's a fatherhood book. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Pam was dating Milton, and so Milton said, "I know my friend Jeff does this." <laughs> and so uh, Pam and I met, and um, and that got me really involved in the fatherhood work, writing fatherhood curriculums. And then a year later, uh, uh, I met Rod Mincy. Uh, and, 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 and by this time, my, my notion of epidemiology or the root cause of the issues facing uh, black male youth was the absence of fathers. I was there and Ron was writing a book uh, at the Urban Institute at the time, uh, uh, focused on, uh, uh, I think he called it Nurturing uh, Fathers. That was uh, Ron's kind of first uh, book in this area. And we connected. And so I've uh, been doing it ever since. And uh, uh, and I have uh, either been involved directly uh, writing for for these demonstration projects, or had a role in the management of those projects, and uh, and even today uh, still involved in many of these fatherhood works, you know, at the state and federal level. And so um, uh, I found uh, in my work with dropouts where my uh, mission in life was, and that was to work on issues associated with men and fathers to uh, to minimize the prospect of a child dropping out of school. 
You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Because mm -hmm. what I realized, it starts in the home. That is your mm -hmm. first educators uh, and, uh, and the research, particularly child development research, which is probably more advanced than any of our work in fatherhood field, you know, clearly indicates study after study, uh, having two loving parents involved in a child's life. And here it is, whether or not they're married or not. All right. right. Because the research on the divorce side, on shared parenting, clearly states that a shared parenting agreement or shared parenting uh, arrangement on behalf of the parents uh, creates a, a better environment to overcome risk factors, negative risk factors for children than uh, uh, than parents who try to single by themselves. And so mm -hmm. that's that's kind of how I got involved in it. And uh, and this is my uh, uh, 32nd or 33rd year being involved in Now, do you ever struggle with, because I struggle with it, so I don't struggle with it as much because I'm convicted in terms of what it is I'm trying to accomplish. And centering your work around black fathers as opposed to all fathers. Do you ever struggle with that or have you ever struggled oh, with oh, that? Oh, 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 absolutely, because see, that's where the, the, the policy divide occurs. All right, and you say policy. You know, policy in Washington means, you know, a lot of times resources, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have this 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 policy divide because, you know, uh, it's a struggle because again, this is where the, the political winds shift, you know, left or right, relative to how much you do for, quote unquote, all fathers. You know, which is an important thing because my commitment is to all fathers, not just low-income fathers. Mm -hmm. but, it, but I look at it, you know, you know, as you might look at a case uh, at a hospital in an emergency ward. Wow. You know, it's like which fathers are in the emergency ward and why are they there? You know what I mean? And, and, and so, and that's who you try to deal with first because they have uh, uh, issues going on that would uh, that interferes with their 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 life and and, and, and their life uh, with others and so that's always been there uh since yeah, it's just since where i would say the fatherhood work has movement has taken some definition i think you have you know uh you know what you might call the father's rights you know which was a legitimate set of concerns born out of you know the, the emphasis on uh, child support as being kind of a substitute uh, for a father's role in families that came in the 80s uh, 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 and, 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 the, 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 and also uh, uh, the divorced fathers who, uh, who since uh, 1950 or so uh, have not had uh, the ability to get shared custody uh, with, their, um, uh, with their children in a divorce situation. It's interesting, even in looking at that, the reason why a lot of divorced fathers Never share get get equity in the custody. Uh, is that because they don't ask for it? You know, right. it's not that they can't get it; they don't ask for it. But then it's a monetary thing too, because you have to have the ability to pay lawyers and all these other type of things. Yeah, be careful. So, 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 so that's that's legitimate. That's legitimate. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, when you start dealing with the issue of, of low income, low skilled uh, uh, fathers of color, and when I say father of color, I'm talking about black, brown, and red. And I want you to think about the history mm -hmm. of black, brown, and red in this country. You can't divorce, you know, what the ketchup uh, uh, has been or trying to catch them up to be on equal footing, to be able to compete for certain jobs or whatever. And you can say that, 
you know, some of it is um, uh, is uh, things that they brought in on, them, on themselves. Mm -hmm. The other is just the history of, of of how we've had to, you know, fight for equity uh, in this country, and you can't divorce that from what we're trying to do for these fathers. And and so, as I said to you earlier, I was approached, you know, many years ago to say, you know. Um, you know, uh, you should join us on the other side because one, people listen to you. Uh, um, uh, uh, you know, you, you're a man of color, and we need mm -hmm. to colorize. You know what we're doing <laughs> on our side. Wow. Uh, and uh, and, um, and my conviction was just to be unapologetic about my work of working with low-income poor fathers. Matter of fact, when MPCL was set up, you know, and we were set up, uh, you know, by the Ford Foundation. Uh, back in the mid '90s, you know, one of the criteria uh, for getting that support from Ford Foundation was to be uh, unabashedly committed to low income, and because again, because the resources I had coming into the organization was uh, anti-poverty dollars, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so that's been a distinction. For example, when and some folks on the right would approach Ford Foundation. You know, um, they were not representing poor people, and that's the same for a lot of when these foundations like Ford, Casey, Mott, and others. You know, these are uh, initiatives uh, that to try to bring equity uh, and, and really focus on issues of income security, poverty reduction, stuff like that. And when you say all fathers are poor, uh, poor uh, is if your uh, uh, description of your work with fathers is that all fathers are poor. You're not going to get there. You're going to have to distinguish between, with with data, who you're working with, why you're working with them, uh, as a way of getting those resources. And so that's you know that's that's it. You know, and and, and that's always been there. Charles Charles uh, Valor uh, tried to educate folks in the 80s about this. You know, Charles would uh, essentially say that when a father is not involved. You know, one should not assume that he does not want to be involved. Right. And that, uh, and, and so, so if you assume that first, then you say, well, if he wants to be involved, what are the barriers? And so, mm -hmm. if you approach it that way, then it, it does include a, a broader segment of the father population, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're talking about divorced dads, uh, 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 separated dads, and, and fathers of, of, of every income level. All right, mm -hmm. fine. But when you really look at you know, I, I start in the premise of there are 15 million poor children in this country. 15 million poor children in this country. So I always start with children, all right? And so I said, well, what I'm trying to do is make sure I get these children out of poverty. And so how do I do that? I have to work with their parents, all right? So who are their parents? Here's mom, you know, who's on TANF, right? And who's the TANF dad? The TANF dad is a guy who didn't marry mom, is probably in the child support system, you know, unlike the premise that brought into play child support as we know it today, he's not dead beat, he's dead broke, right? Mm -hmm. And you gotta really be able to, but, but, but the premise of it is, you don't start with him, you start with where you find children, mm -hmm. and that children have to be covered. We know, you know, I, I'm an unabashedly a Christian, right? And, and, and the Bible talks about you know, uh, working with widows and orphans, right? You know, as a, as a primary premise of our Christian duty. I would say the widows and orphans today are poor women and poor children. 
right? And that, and, and what we want to do is 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 target them as our priority area. And, and what we're doing uh, with our father work is making sure that he can make a contribution beyond the financial, uh, mm -hmm. so that he understands his value as a mentor, as a nurturer, uh, as a lifelong parent. Because as you know, once you become a parent, you're a parent for life. Absolutely. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you use a term, you use the word movement, and I wrote it down when you said it because I wanted to see what you thought about this. Good friend of ours that we used to work with back in my Urban League days, um, George Frazier. I know you know George Frazier. I know George. PowerNet, right? He used to come to, or we used to bring him to New York all the time, and he would come, and we would just have these really intimate conversations. And this was before he started mm -hmm. PowerNet. In fact, Albany, New York was one of the first cities that he put in his book when he was building his network. And we used to have those conversations at the Urban League. And so he used to say to me, he's like, Kenny, you know, black people in, in the history of in the history of black people, um, we have th we've always had three imperatives. And he said, um, our first imperative was freedom. And he said, everybody understood all black people understood that freedom, that freedom was our fight. Um, mm -hmm. And everybody did it a particular way, but everybody yes. was focused on freedom. Right. Right. The second imperative was civil rights. He said, mm -hmm. every black person understood that we needed to fight for civil rights. Everybody fought that way in their own way, but everybody mm -hmm. was clear about civil rights. He said, the third one that we struggle with, but is still our imperative is economics. He yes. says, black people have to figure out where we're going in order for us to get there because we're not on the same page with the destination. Everybody is doing their own thing, but it's not a collective effort in the sense that we're all moving in the same direction. When you use the term movement about fatherhood, I think about that in the same way. Yeah. yeah. That, that fatherhood, when we say movement, to me is not a movement because we haven't determined where we're mm -hmm. going. Everybody is doing something different, yes. but overall, we have not determined what is it that we're after. Speak to that a minute, because I know that that would resonate right. with you. Right. I would say, you know, uh, you know, the evolution of the maternal child health system, you know, we say in the book is a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, I would think, I think that if you think about fatherhood movement in the context of which I mean it, uh, it, it is a, a, a patchwork of ideas. There's no uh, uh, kind of uh, a flying like geese uh, 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 effort, you know, to do this because where it, where it divides is again along what I'm going to call divorced uh, and separated fathers who with income, with fathers on the other end who've never been married and who are broke, right? Mm -hmm. and, the, and, and the advocacy efforts that have evolved, you know, in that in that in that manner. Mm -hmm. I think that there have been opportunities over the past two decades to come together and to and to um, be uh, empathetic and unify around a more collective kind of father effort across the board. But it's not sustained itself. And the reason why it's not sustained itself is because there's no single leader who's kind of done that, uh, uh, if you could kind of look at it in that way. The other part of it, 
there's no apparatus out there that has been able to meld those things together in a way in which it's acceptable on all sides. I think that for me, the closest that has come to it has been maybe our fatherhood conference, all right? Because we've done our fatherhood conference for the last 25 years. And if you look at the history of the fatherhood conference, when we started out, it's always invited all schools of thought when it relates to fathers. You know, it's always been an open conversation I've had with, you know, with people who are not necessarily prioritizing low-income men. And to give them a space and a voice within what I'm going to call the community-based responsible fatherhood community, because that's where a lot of our work has been focusing, community-based efforts and not necessarily efforts, you know, that involve, you know, mediation and the courts and all these other things that kind of, that has worked to challenge, you know, fathers' access to their children, you know, post-divorce and separation. Again, that's a clear distinction of our work. The marriage, divorce, those are where the demarcations come in. But again, I think through the conference, for example, even with our conference coming up in June, and just to give you an idea, and you can appreciate this, you know, on that first panel, we're going to be talking, how do you, you know, how do we embrace the, how do we think about the history of our work, but also embrace the future? So on that first panel, I have, you know, Wade Horn, Ron Minson, you know, Seth Chamberlain, and I have Ken, right? And you know all those people, you know them very well. And you also know that we all don't have the same thought processes when it comes to where we've been and where we're going. But that's okay, because again, because what we don't need, we need allies, all right? We can't be so selfish that we don't have allies or think that we're doing something, you know, so, what I'm going to say, you know, one of the things that Charles, you know, used to do to, that really, I guess, spoke to kind of, you know, why I'm emphasizing this point, because Charles took the point of view that fewer called, many are called, fewer chosen. And that he was the chosen one, right? And he wanted everybody to align behind him, all right? And listen, a lot of us were willing to do that, but I don't think, and I think you would agree, that when you do the, it's complex work. This is hard work. You can't do it by yourself, all right? It's like, you may have a missionary calling, but, you know, but there are other folks on this mission field as well that you got to, you know, align yourself with. And if they're not where you are, you got to take the time to wait until they get there, because when you go in front of Congress and you're trying to get legislation passed, you know, you have to represent a critical mass of voices and support. Because if it's just you, you get singled out, you know what I mean? Absolutely. So you got to have that, all right? And so I think that, so we're going back to your original question. I would say it's a movement of diverse 
efforts to focus on fatherhood, all right? Mm -hmm. So it is a movement in that context. But in terms of those three points that you mentioned uh, that you had in conversations with George Frazier, uh, it, it's, it's certainly not, it's not that, right? Oh, wow. and, and that's just, you know, and I think that part of that is because, you know, also is because we're in an educational endeavor, all right? In other words, you know, we have responsibility for educating fathers to, uh, to, to, to help them get to where they want to go from a career standpoint, right? Mm -hmm. But also we want to educate them on how to be the best father they can be in their circumstances, mm -hmm. which cuts us across workforce development, social work, education, and all those other things. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and so when you start doing that, it's hard to, 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 to make it neat, mm -hmm. right? And, that, and that's particularly with regards to the low-income fathers. So when you're working with fathers who are not low-income, education is not your objective, right? You know what I mean? Because these guys got PhDs, law degrees, whatever. Mm -hmm. Finance is not their issue. They paid $10,000, $15,000 to get a divorce. You know what I mean? So, mm -hmm. <laughs> you follow me? so you're dealing with different variables there. However, however, what we collectively have an interest is, is making sure that as many fathers are engaged positively in the lives of their children as possible, and that's across the income spectrum, all right? Because when children don't, you know, I don't care whether it's a high-income family where a, a, a father is absent, you know, the, the, the deleterious effects of that on a child are great, you know, right? and, they, and they increase, all right? And we also know when a father uh, on a low-income spectrum, he's not involved, uh, then you also have that. So, you know, uh, so, so the, 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 the nexus between us is over father engagement, is it father engagement and not necessarily agreeing on every point of focus as it relates to different segments of fathers. Mm -hmm. the way and then, and father, then wanting all those, or then wanting all right. those it's different diverse. segments to it be the same, had. right? Then wanting exactly. the outcomes from all to be the same, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. so we're all diverse. We're yeah. diverse. We're at different stages uh, in that whole process. But again, some of us have to be advocate for those who are not in a position to advocate for themselves. Absolutely. And that's where we've tended to uh, put our energy in. Uh, in and, I'm, and I'm not a cool. Let me get to your. Yeah, let me get to your book because we got about eight minutes um, okay. and I want to get to your book. But I was going to throw something at you, but I don't want to throw I, I don't want to throw it at you, but I want to throw it at you because I know it's going to eat up the next eight minutes. So I'm just going to say it and we'll come okay. back and maybe talk about it. And you were mentioning, you know, about the conference and then you were talking about that entity and that platform. And I was wondering, could that entity be birthed out of the conference an NFLG-like mechanism? I, 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 I think so. I, I, the reason why I think so, but again, again, these are things where, you know, um, you know, we got to get some support behind right. it to, to, to sustain it, right? right? Because it's easier to attain than to <laughs> sustain, right? right? So we got to do that. But I, I, I do because because when I because I have on one panel I got those guys, and then on another panel I got Robert Taylor, I got Avis uh, Files, I got. Uh, Michael Munoz from the Hall of Fame. You know, these are younger folk. You know what I mean? And so, and, and the question becomes: How do we how do we bridge? You know, the, the, you know the different 
ideological frameworks, how do we bridge, you know, the, the, the different uh, age differences within those of us who are kind of nearing a retirement age with those who they'll be around for the next 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. And so, but those are conversations that we're having at the conference. But in order for us to sustain a level of effort, you know, as you know, Ken, you gotta have support for that. But but I'm committed to doing it and, and also committed through the conference to try to, you know, uh, formulate some ideas. And yeah, some we should talk about that. I'm gonna I'm keep that in my mind. I, when you said it, I was like, huh, that would probably be a great, let's, let's, let's come, let's, as, um, as Dr. Mincy would say, let's noodle on that. Yes, um, noodle, that's right. <laughs> that's let's right. Let's noodle that's on right. that and come back to that. Right. Um, because I might, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, man, you know what? I should, and I'll talk to you about this as well, mm-hmm. should bring I Am Dad podcast to the conference and just set it up and oh, just do great. live interviews, you know, do live interviews then. Um, but let's get to your book. Let's get to okay, your book. Uh, why the book? Why the book is, uh, First of all, it's important for uh, men of color, African-Americans in particular, in this way, to, 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 to make their claim within the evolution of the work we do with the fathers, right? And as you know, there are not a lot of books out there on fatherhood written by uh, men of color, all right? And, 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 and if they are written, and, and the books that are written, our role in that work, the narrative is minimized, you know, for mm-hmm. example, there's probably no fatherhood book in America that you can pick up that's going to talk about Charles Bell. All right, mm. you have to talk about Charles Bell. Right, you right, have right. to, all right. right, in the work because you know chronology is the spine of history. All right, mm. so you mm. gotta be able to do that. But you also have to have folks who who, who provide the narrative, and so that's one part of it. Mm. The other part of it is that we wanted to share uh, in a kind of a fisherman's guide type of way. You know how to think about the work we're doing with fatherhood. You know, and that's why we we start out with uh, you know typologies. You know, type one, type two, type three. There are different types of programs in their mm-hmm. evolutionary track, and, and, you, and they and some sometimes they 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 are all the typologies at one. All right, all in right. one in one figure fatherhood program. Mm-hmm. But the goal is to put yourself in a position where you can be an evidence based fatherhood program. And, right. and what we talk about in the book, especially in the later chapters, is important evaluation. And that personally, I believe, having been a part of going back to parents first year unwed fathers 30 some years ago, I think a lot of our community-based efforts, uh, Kitty, have have been subject to what I'm going to call the, uh, the the gold standard evaluations without looking at their evolutionary trail to that practice. You know, in other words, there's a step before. And mm-hmm. we call it evidence of promise, and that, and, and because I would say that because of that, uh, we've kind of got the short shrift in terms of as a as a as a field of work of how effective we are, because people are asking us to be uh, uh, effective at a gold standard level. When the What Works Clearinghouse example of an evidence based practice, you know, lends itself to the fact it takes years to do that. In the way in which they have defined fatherhood programs, even with the NBRCs, the PACT evaluation, of other, is still as a developmental work. It does not mean that we're not important. It just means that we probably have been evaluated with a standard that does not comport with our growth process. Mm-hmm. And so you got that. So we want to do that. We also want to talk about the importance of, you know, how do you 
how you organize a program. You got to have community partnerships. You can't do it by yourself because no one organization can do it by themselves. Then we talk about choosing curriculum. You know, that's kind of, you know, been, uh, you know, I see myself as a, a, a practitioner educator and my job is to teach practitioner uh, practitioners how to educate parents, mm-hmm. right? We are parent educators. Wow. Uh, and, and I've been able to form a partnership with the National Council of Family um, Relations. And so our programs, all of our programs now are certified through that entity uh, and to for folks to be family life educators, because that's what we are. And mm-hmm. so we, we're in search of definition. And mm-hmm. the, the more we can kind of standardize our way of doing the work, the better able researchers and evaluators are going to come in and determine what we're doing, who we're doing before, mm-hmm. why it works, and who it works for. And mm-hmm. so that's why we did the book. Uh, again, to, 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 to put an imprimatur out there about, you know, don't forget that folks have been around, like the Ken Braswells, the, the, the Ron Mincy's and others, you know, uh, you know, leadership-oriented black men, you know, who have contributed mightily to the work we're doing with fathers. Mm-hmm. And again, we're left out of the other narratives, you know, right. when it comes to our work. But the other part of it is that what have we learned that could be of best interest to people starting out and wanting to grow their work? Mm, absolutely. And there's a lot of that as well. Um, Dr. Jeff, you are always a wealth of information, and I'm sure I will have you back because there's other conversations that I left on the table um, <laughs> and that I want to bring you back for, and I really want to bring you back on because I want to dig a little deeper um, into this program implementation piece of it. The other reason I want to dig a little deeper into that conversation is because one of the things that I've been thinking about is how do we play a role in influencing OFA in the way that they write the RFPs? Exactly, exactly. Because sometimes they, they, sometimes, sometimes in the way that they're written, they are setting people up for failure just because they, they, they have they, they great really grant are. writers. Mm-hmm. They're right. So see, if you write a, if you get, if you get write a nice grant, all right, writing a nice grant does not necessarily mean anything when it comes to implementation. But but let me say, I think that that's part, and that's how it started, and that's how it continues. All right, because a lot of folks who had as the, uh, the monitors and. Uh, and, and program specialists uh, at OFA, and this is no cast excursions, but a lot of them don't know about the work that we do because they're not involved in the work. Mm-hmm. Yet still, they have to come back and report on how the work is going. Wow. And, you know, it, it, it's hard to do that if you don't know, you know, <laughs> the, the intent behind some of this work uh, and those type of things. And so and I'm, I'm very uh, uh, picky you know, when it comes to, for example, I remember one of the grant applications where it was written, it, it's somebody, you know, it said that you can use any curriculum you want, five different curriculums, all right? Mm-hmm. And then you go out and try to monitor that, you don't even know which one, you know, and, and then with the program, <laughs> we develop their preference, mm-hmm. but you don't know, you know, uh, but and they don't know which ones that they're doing at a given time or whatever. You gotta, you gotta, it's like, when you take an algebra class, right? When you take an algebra class, there are certain books, Hofen Mifflin, those publishers have written those books. Let me tell you why they wrote those books. They wrote those books so that students can pass the standardized achievement test, mm-hmm. right? Those mm-hmm. teachers know it. They go through professional development in the summer. 
and then they implement those textbooks during the school year. And it's reflected in how well those students do that. In our work, we got to get to that point. We got to get to the point where we say, if you follow these prescriptions, if you work with a certain segment of fathers, this is the attitude changes you should see at some point, the knowledge gains they should get, and then down the road, the behavior. But if, mm -hmm. you, if you're working, but you can't do that with five different things coming at these fathers at one time. You got to eat. We got to follow a franchise model. You know, if you've gone to uh, uh, Cracker Barrel or McDonald's or any of those, all right, you can go to one in one community and another community. It's the same. Mm -hmm. Fries taste the same. Burgers taste the same, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. and, 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 and so uh, the environmental conditions are the same. And, and, and in some respects, I think we have to get there in the fatherhood work. And I think that what we're trying to do at NPCL uh, in our partnership with the Council on Family Relations, we are working with them to make sure that that's precisely what we're doing. But I think the field has to catch up to that as well. Yeah, yeah. So tell people how they can get the book. Um, tell them about the information on how they can attend the conference, and then also tell them how they can get in touch with you. You can basically come to go to our website. It's www.npclfathersandfamilies.org, all one word. And you can get the book. You can also order on Amazon. Uh, uh, you can get it for a little bit cheaper on our website. Uh, it's interesting, Kenny. You know, I was uh, uh, I had uh, Cornell University wanted to publish the book, but they told me that once they published it, I would have no rights over it. Right. I said, I said no way, Jose. And so, so, and so we we do our distribution. So you can go on our website. I think it's thirty five dollars or whatever on our website. I think it's forty five on. Uh, on, on Amazon, so you can get it that way. But you can get all the information, as well as information on the conference at our website. Registration is open. Uh, it's gonna be both a in-person and a virtual event. It's gonna be a high-quality production uh, at uh, the, the, the Pro Football Hall of Fame Village. Uh, Kenny, I know you've been there. You've worked mm -hmm. on the project with uh, Kim Dent there. And, and I tell you, they're much further along now than what they were. I think when you were there, they got uh, restaurants there right now. And, mm -hmm. uh, it's just, uh, and it's, you know, it's a lot of family things there. Uh, and uh, I'm impressed, you know what I mean? It's so, uh, and so, and, and you know, they're trying, the, the Pro, Football, Pro Football Hall of Fame is trying to set up a father institute there uh, on their campus. And, and we are helping influence, you know, that direction in a positive way. And so uh, it's going to be a, uh, a high quality production. We're introducing, we're, we're, we're also uh, bringing in additional members to the to Hall of Fame, like you are, Kenny. We're bringing in uh, Jerry Tao, uh, you know, with our uh, Ballot Award. Uh, Derek. Uh, 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 Gordon. Uh, Gordon is, 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 is being uh, uh, awarded with the, the Mincy Scholarship Award. He's coming mm -hmm. in there. And, mm -hmm. and Deborah Austin, our... our our Woman and Fatherhood Leader Award. And so all those things, you see, see what we do and what the conference does, it brings stability to the work, mm -hmm. right? It, it, it's a gathering place. And then what we got to do, as we do uh, through our Hall of Fame luncheon, you know, is really uh, and, and introduce to the public people that you and I both know have made mighty contributions in the fatherhood work. And, and, and this is our way of, of recognizing them but also planting that stone for others to uh, to look at what they do, like the Derek Gordons of the world, like the Deborah Austin of the world, like the Jerry Tails of the world, a 
Robert Taylor mm-hmm. uh, uh, from Nashville is getting our Community Practitioner Award. Uh, and so it's just going to be a great affair. Uh, and, um, and, and, and folks, uh, uh, I just encourage you to, uh, to come and, to, to, and to, to, to be a part of the experience. If not, uh, 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 register uh, for our virtual component of the conference. Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. And I will go online and look at the, um, at the um, vendor table stuff. It's if, if it's not there, I'll holler at you and see what I need to do to make that happen. I think that'll be really cool for me. That'll be the first time I've ever taken the podcast on the roll. That might be, you know, that might be something that I might be able to do. Plus, you know, you're going to have, you know, however many people you're going to have there. I might be able to walk out of there with about 30, 40, 50, you know, interviews <laughs> for the next two years. That's of right, that's right, that's right. There. So right, um, right. thank you for joining I Am That podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell. Make sure um, you check out Dr. Um, Johnson's book, Cornerstones of Responsible Fatherhood Planning, Implementation and Evaluation. Um, go to his website at mpclfathersandfamilies.org to find out about both the book and the conference and about my good friend, Dr. Johnson. Man, it's been a pleasure. I'm so glad we did this thing. And let's make sure that we be, an intent- we be intentional about where we're taking this field moving forward. All right. Thank you, Kenny, for the Thank opportunity. You. And keep up the great work. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. You've been listening to I Am Dad Podcast. We hope that you have been informed, encouraged you to think, or even inspired your heart for the love of dads. The conversation does not end here. Come back and join us next week. Same time, same place. Or you can continue the dialogue on our I Am Dad Facebook page. We also invite you to listen to past episodes, learn more about us, and keep up with special activities by visiting IamDadPodcast.com. That's IamDadPodcast.com. Until next time. I leave you with this reminder of manhood from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Because of this reminder, I will always understand that I am dad, period.